Our second lesson is taken from the general epistle of James, the letter of James, chapter 1, verse 2 following. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and, in, and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And then from chapter 4 of the book of James, from whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your own lusts that war in your own members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your own lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do ye then think that the Scripture saith in vain, The Spirit dwelleth in us, and lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace. Wherefore, he saith, God resisteth the proud, but he giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Amen. May God bless to us an understanding of this his word. We have been studying for the benefit of our visitors, and there are so many visitors, and I've been, I had a letter from a lady listening to us on the radio, and she said, I want to thank you for summarizing each week what you've been uh, teaching because this has helped me to be able to keep uh, in mind uh, what has gone on Sunday by Sunday. We began some weeks ago a study of the Lord's Prayer. The first of all, we have to concern ourselves with to whom that prayer is addressed. God is our Father. This means he is our Father by a spiritual rebirth. When we are born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, then we can accurately and honestly and earnestly make this prayer. Until that time, the prayer which we must make is that of a sinner seeking the forgiveness of sins that he might be brought into the experience of the new birth. We have also said that the Bible teaches us that if we regard iniquity in our hearts, the Lord will not hear us. The reason that I read to you the rather complicated passage from James a moment ago 
was to show you that often we have not because we pray amiss. We pray to consume something on our lust, or we pray like we play bingo. Lord, give me this. Lord, give me that. Lord, give me this. Lord, give me that. And bingo, something happens that we think uh, is an answer to prayer. But we have really not surrendered to him. A person who has not surrendered his life to the conscious lordship of Jesus cannot properly pray the Lord's Prayer. It is sheer hypocrisy. A man in the pornography business could not pray the Lord's Prayer. A person disseminating filthy motion pictures could not do it. Those who place temptations in the way of other people cannot earnestly pray this prayer. When I stop to think, thy kingdom come, do I really want God's rule, his rule over my mind and heart so that I am submitted to his will in all my ways? Do I really? Or, or am I simply trying to fake it with God? Well, this is a very searching prayer, and it cuts right through to the deepest needs of our hearts. Uh, it has six petitions to it. The first three petitions tell us that we are to honor the name of God, honor his name, not ours. And we honor his name both by behavior and by belief. We are to extend his kingdom now. We are to be the means of extending his kingdom today. I'm not to pray simply that his kingdom come one day. That's in it all right. But I am to pray that I am to be a faithful subject of the king, King Jesus, his faithful subject today. That means that he should be ruling and reigning over me. If you want to read something of the king's great manifesto, then read all of the Sermon on the Mount. Read it carefully. Read it prayerfully. And what a mirror it brings to us, how it trims us down to size. In my own private devotions, this is my English, New English Bible, I have written here uh, uh, just these words from the, Lord's, uh, from the Lord's Sermon on the Mount. But what I tell you is this, anyone who nurses anger against his brother must be brought to judgment. If he abuses his brother, he must answer for it in the court. If he sneers at him, he will have to answer for it in the fires of hell. What a tremendous thing. And immediately following this, he tells us that if we have done something wrong, when we come to the altar to pray, leave our gift, go and get right, and then come back and make our prayers. So you see, this is not for people who want to play church. This is for people who want to be true disciples, really yielded to the Lordship of Christ. And so we are to pray to hallow his name for his kingdom to come and for his will, not ours, to be done. So often we want God to do our will instead of surrendering ourselves to do his will. And then we pray also in the other three petitions for the first three have to do especially with God's glory, his name, his kingdom, his will. The other three have to deal especially with our own needs, a need for daily bread, the need for the forgiveness of sins. But as I said last Lord's Day when we studied this, what a frightening petition it is to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. My, what self-crucifixion is demanded of us when we remember that. 
in the measure that I forgive, I can be forgiven. But if I do not forgive, then I will not be forgiven, either in this world nor in the world to come. My prayer is a mockery to God. A person says to me, how do I do this? And then that huge hypocrisy which says, well, I can forgive, but I can't forget. Huh. That won't work. That won't work. The way you can forgive someone else is to remember your own sins and how often you've had to ask God for forgiveness. And then I can forgive because that whittles me down to size and it makes me amenable to God's therapy, the therapy of forgiveness, when I recount the wrongs which I have done. Then I can pray, dear Lord, forgive and mean it. Andrew Jackson, one of the great presidents of this country, came to Christ when he was an old man. But he was dealt with by a God-fearing, Christ-honoring minister who was not awed by this great man's stature in world affairs, but who dealt earnestly with his soul. And when he examined him for a profession of faith, he said to Andrew Jackson, can you forgive all who have sinned against you? And Andrew Jackson said, no, I cannot. I cannot forgive the people who have slandered my wife. He was a man who was very devoted to his wife, and uh, some great wrongs had been heaped upon uh, their relationship. And the old minister told him, if you cannot forgive, you cannot be forgiven, and you cannot join the church. He further instructed him into how he could die to self and let Christ live in him. And you're never more Christ-like than when you can pray as Christ prayed from the cross, Father, forgive them. And it was hard to pray that prayer. What did he ever do to deserve to be nailed to a cross, to be mocked at, to be spat upon, to be misunderstood and ridiculed? Finally, Andrew Jackson did surrender his will. And he did forgive, and he sought forgiveness, and a profession of his faith in Christ was made. And then we come today to the sixth of the petitions, the last of the petitions in the Lord's Prayer. And it says in the New English Bible, do not bring us to the test, but save us from the evil one. This causes us to stop and think. Now James has told us a moment ago that God does not tempt us to do evil and he does not. He allows temptations to come, but a man is tempted when he is enticed away of his own lust. Part of this comes from a misunderstanding of the word trial or temptation. I'll never forget my first uh, encounter with a uh, double meaning of words uh, we had a friend from Italy who was visiting in our home in Texas back in the old days. And I'll never forget, uh, this man was a Waldensian pastor. And he had come to my home in Texas, and I, as those of you who know me, come from a very RFD rural atmosphere out in the country. And my mother told me in the presence of our distinguished guest to go and get two friars. Now, my friend from Italy, who understood some English and who was a Waldensian, thought automatically about two Roman Catholic priests. 
<laughs> and he thought about two friars in the church. He didn't know that mama was telling me to go and get two chickens. She said, she said go and get two friars. I'm going to cook them. And the, 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 I don't know whether this man thought I was against Catholics or what, but uh, this, uh, this was a, a double meaning for the word there and a, a word that he didn't quite understand. Well, the word test and the word uh, temptation comes two ways. First, there is temptation that comes to us of the devil and is, is, is allowed of the Lord. And what we pray for here is a prayer for the future. It means that none of us consider ourselves above temptation, not one single one of us. And let me say at this point, and I didn't mean to get into this, this whole Watergate affair that has been blown into the headlines again today and will probably lead to impeachment proceedings against the president and a great deal of havoc wrought in our whole country at a critical time in our history. A Christian, in looking at this, is not shocked so much by sin because there's no shortage of sin, either in the Democrats or the Republicans. No shortage at all. But the Christian must judge. He cannot condone what is evil or wrong. But he must also be careful in his judgments. Sometimes the reaction against sin can be worse than the sin itself. We can react in a harsh, pharisaical, self-righteous glee that will bring destruction upon ourselves. And we can booby trap ourselves in that way. And we need to guard against that very much. Having said that, we need to remember the words of Jesus about judgment. With what judgment we judge, we shall be judged. We need also to pray. Perhaps if we'd been more in earnest in prayer, perhaps if those in high authority had prayed more earnestly this particular prayer, it would have made a great difference in the affairs of our country today because it has to do with times of testing. I hold in my hand a copy of a book called The Almost Chosen People, a study of the religion of Abraham Lincoln by Professor William J. Wolfe. In this, Abraham Lincoln, who had an amazing development of his spiritual life after he became president of the United States, issued a call which might be appropriate for our own country today, a call for personal and national repentance. And in this, it is striking because it is an official document of the United States Senate. It was made at the suggestion of Senator Harlan of Iowa. Congress passed a resolution calling upon the president to set apart a day for national prayer and humiliation. The text of this Senate document was remarkable for it is explicitly Christian. It seeks help from him, from God, according to God's appointed way through Jesus Christ. Fully concurring in the views of the Senate, Lincoln 
named April the 30th, 1863, as a national fast day. He counseled personal and national repentance. He said that the Bible in the course of history showed the necessity for a nation to acknowledge God. And because Abraham Lincoln had a way with words that few men in living history have had, I want to read you something of what that man wrote verbatim in the agony of his own spiritual pilgrimage and the trials he saw upon his country. I quote, It is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon and to recognize the sublime truth announced in Holy Scripture and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. And so inasmuch as we know that by his divine law nations like individuals are subjected to punishment and chastisement in this world, may we not justly fear that the awful calamity of civil war which now desolates the land, may be but punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers and wealth and power as no other nation has ever grown, but we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace, multiplied and enriched and strengthened us, and we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. That's a tremendous sermon coming from a president, isn't it? A message that's needed today and right in keeping with the petition here. For when we pray that the Lord will not lead us to be tested beyond that we are recognizing our own human frailty and our dependence upon him. When the Lord Jesus Christ came out of the waters of the river of Jordan and the Spirit of God spoke, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, the Holy Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. And there in the wilderness he was tempted of Satan. And those temptations are very worthy of study. Here is a trial that was permitted of God, a testing period. For 40 days and 40 nights he fasted. And he must have been concerned in those 40 days and 40 nights for what he would be doing in the days that lie ahead in those precious three short years in which he would bring forth this teaching, in which he would agonize for your soul and for my soul in prayer and in the Garden of Gethsemane 
and all the way to the cross. He must have been agonizing about that. He prayed over those whom he would choose to be his first apostles. And after he had finished the 40 days and the 40 nights of prayer, the devil tempting him came to him, hungry, and said, if you're the son of God, why don't you turn these stones into bread and eat them? A temptation to his flesh. There are people who think that sex is the largest temptation to the flesh. Sex has nothing to compare with the temptation to a hungry, starving person for food. Here he is hungry and he is tempted of the evil one. Turn these stones into bread. Use this power that God has given you for your own selfish ends. And this is all too often what we try to do is to use the power of God for our own selfish ends. We want God to bless me, bless my son John, my wife, and, and, and so on, and no more. That's all, just selfishness. Well, Jesus did not fall for the trick of the devil. He said it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, and so he refused. He refused. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. He said, I have bread to eat that ye know not of. And that bread was a surrender to the will of God. Do you love God that much, or do you even want to love him that much? Satan said to him, as he took him up to the pinnacle of the temple, and looked down on the courtyard at all of those thronging multitudes who had come to the temple. Now, you want to establish your kingdom. You could have established it on bread. You could have been the bread man. But if you jump down and you perform this stunt, all of these people will be in wonder and awe at your greatness. And the devil said, you quoted scripture to me a while ago. I remember a verse. And that verse in scripture says, that he will give his angels charge over thee, and they shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. So why don't you jump down? And Jesus said, it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. I've seen people say, oh, if God would just do this, then I'll believe. You won't. You won't. Tempting God to be the stunt man. And then the great political arena is brought into it, a shortcut. Satan showed him in a vision all of the kingdoms of the world, all of the kingdoms of the world. Think of all the kingdoms. Think of the dynasties in China. Think of the civilizations in uh, South America. Think of the Romans, the Persians, all of the kingdoms in, that were in the whole world. And Satan said, do you see all these multitudes in India and Asia and Africa? See all of these in Europe? I'll give them all to you. And all you've got to do is bow down and worship me. A shortcut. That's what Satan is always trying to tempt us. Don't go teaching that Jesus is the only way to heaven. This is what the devil says. Teach that all religions are equally good. That there are many roads to God. That sounds so broad-minded, doesn't it? So good, but it's a lie. 
That's what Satan tried to get Jesus to do right here. Bow down. Don't go saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Don't go thinking that it's necessary for you to go all the way to the cross and die. I'll give you a shortcut. I'll show you a shortcut to all the kingdoms of the world. Just bow down and serve me. Beware of shortcuts. That's the lesson of Watergate to us. Beware of shortcuts. Think of those men. Those men who contrived in the beginning this thing which has evolved into such a crisis in our land. They never dreamed that it would lead into this. But one sin led quickly to another. And there is a drop of Watergate in us all. We are to pray. Jesus resisted Satan. And when he resisted Satan, that last time, he quoted scripture to him again and said, Satan, be gone. And commanded that he leave and he left. So Jesus bids us to pray. Pray that God would sanctify us, make us holy, by not allowing us to be tested beyond that which we can bear, not to be presumptuous, not to go into the path of temptation. I say to a young man who is tempted along the line of sex and lust, if you're tempted in that way, don't go on a single date. Don't go on anything less than a triple date. That's good. You know, that's a, uh, the Bible says to flee youthful lust. The word flee means run. There are certain fleshly sins that the best thing to do is simply get away. Sam Jones, a great Methodist evangelist, used to tell of a man who was converted in, a, in an evangelistic meeting. And he said everyone rejoiced in this drunkard's conversion. He had come to Christ. But he would come into town on Saturday and he would hitch his horse at the hitching post in front of the saloon where he used to hitch it before his conversion days. He would walk on down the street to the general store, but he hitched it in the same old place. And Sam Jones said that the neighbors all observed that it was not long before he was back in the saloon again. And it was not long before he was back into his drunkenness again. And the moral of that story is don't go hitching your horse in front of the place where you know that temptation is going to be. But simply put distance between you and the temptation. Put distance between you and the temptations of the flesh. This is worthy of our remembering. Do not bring us to the test. But if we are to be tested, then deliver us, save us from that evil one. Jesus recognized the fact that Satan exists. Jesus knows this, and we are foolish if we do not recognize it. He's out in the Middle East. He's here in this sanctuary this morning. He will go with you when you go home. He will do what he can to destroy you. He is a deceiver. His greatest deception is to get people to think that he does not exist. Or 
His other big deception is to make you think that you cannot live by the power of Christ above his temptations. Jesus. Jesus shows us that by his grace we can be victor. Not that any one of us becomes perfect because we do not become perfect. But because we yield as much of ourselves as we know to as much of him, the Lord Jesus, as we understand, and his spirit dwells within us, and the work of sanctification is dying more and more day after day under sin and living more and more under the lordship of Christ. Over in England, there is a river, very famous river in the city of London, the River Thames. It used to be that there was a, uh, if, you, if you got on the subway, you would come to what is called Thames Station. And one little English girl was saying her prayers one night, and she finished. She said to her mommy, she said, Mommy, why does the Lord's Prayer say, lead us not into Tim's station? <laughs> she said, what's wrong with Tim's station? <laughs> uh, she, she got a little mixed up. And a lot of people get mixed up here. There is a station where there is temptation. And we are not to go there. We're to stay away from it. We can stay away from it by making friends with God's children, by helping those who are weak. We can stay strong through the word of God and through prayer, such as we have mentioned here. And we can see victory over temptation in that way. Alexander White is one of the most marvelous examples of the grace of God that I've ever known. I didn't know him personally, but I feel like I've known him because I've lived in his books for more than 20 years. I think I went all the way to Edinburgh to go to school just because Alexander White had preached in Edinburgh and had been the principal of New College. Now, I used to go into the refectory, into the dining hall in Edinburgh, and I saw the, the picture of that remarkable, incredible, preposterously effective preacher, Alexander White, there in the, in the dining hall. They have his, his painting. Alexander White, the moderator of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, the principal of New College in Edinburgh, the Divinity Hall, the greatest preacher in all of Scotland in his time. Do you know where Alexander White origin is. Once there was a young woman named Janet Thompson, and Janet Thompson fell into a sin of the flesh with a man whose name was White. He came to Janet Thompson and offered to marry her to give the child that would be born a name. But Janet Thompson knew that he did not love her, and so she refused his offer of marriage, and he came away to the United States and was killed in the American Civil War. Janet Thompson's parents did not turn her out. They were weavers, and they made cloth in their home with a spinning wheel. And uh, they wove it there, they spun the cloth, and they used looms, hand looms. The power looms came in finally. And when it did, a great depression hit Scotland. And Janet Thompson 
could not find bread enough to feed her little baby boy. As the years began to grow on, when he was only nine years of age, she had to take him and apprentice him to a shoemaker in Kurimur. She walked some miles holding her little boy by the hand. She went into the shoemaker's shop to apprentice him as a servant there so that he could have food and clothing on his back. But before she left town, she stopped by the kirk and she saw there a minister. And Alexander White told this same story that I'm telling the day he was inaugurated as principal of New College to all of the distinguished senate of the University of Edinburgh and all of the students. He told how his mother had taken him there and had left him with the cobbler and had gone by the kirk. And he said there was a minister in that kirk, a minister who had such a dreadful time with Hebrew and Greek that it was only by the grace of his professors he was ever graduated at all. But he said when my mother knocked at his door and told him of her nine-year-old boy who had been left with the cobbler and asked if he could take time to teach him the catechism and to talk with him about the things of Jesus Christ. He said that minister of the Kirk of Scotland did that. And he said if it had not been for my mother's knock at that man's door and had it not been for that minister's grace in teaching me the things of Christ, I would not be standing here behind this lectern today addressing you as the principal of New College. Well, old Alexander White reached over the pulpit in Edinburgh and he quoted these words from 1 John, which are so appropriate to the text that we have been studying. He said, The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. And then he shook his head, and he said, There is no such word as this in the Bible. And everyone was startled. And then Alexander White quoted the whole passage of Scripture. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. When we pray, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil, we are praying that God will enable us to walk in the light. Let us stand in prayer.